Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. We are making our way through a series on prayer, and today I want to look with you at what I believe to be the greatest problem facing those who pray. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Matthew 26, verses 39 through 45 will be our focus, page 832, and the worship Bible is provided underneath the chair in front of you, or if you're on a front row, underneath your chair. Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 to 45. Now, our passage occurs the uh, night before Jesus' death. He has taken his disciples to a specific place on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, an olive orchard called Gethsemane. Now, this is significant because this is the place where Jesus and his disciples always went particularly at the Passover time, the the city of Jerusalem would be flooded with people. There would be no place to stay. And like many others, they would stay outside the city as close as they could, but outside the city because there was no room. This is significant because, if you will recall, uh, Judas has uh, set up to betray him. Jesus knows Judas is set up to betray him. And yet Jesus goes to the spot where he always goes when he is there for Passover. He is not running from Judas. He's not running from his enemies. He knows Judas knows, and he goes where Judas knows he would go. He goes there to Gethsemane. There in Gethsemane, he asks eight of his disciples to stay at the entrance when he goes in. He asked three of them, Peter, James, and John, to go in with him. And in verse 38, he tells us that he becomes, or the scripture says, that he becomes sorrowful and distressed. Anguished and distressed would be more, uh, a more powerful and perhaps a better way to put it, to the point that he feels as if he is dying. He needs the support of his friends He asks the three to watch with him or to keep awake and to go on in prayer for him as he goes on to pray for himself. We get a powerful picture of the humanity of the uh, uh, very Son of God here in the garden. The Scripture reports, beginning at verse 39, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And I've often wondered, what is it? Why did he go back to the disciples? What did he want to tell them? What did he want to share with them? What did they miss in this incredible hour of Jesus' greatest need? What did they miss by their sleeping? They were exhausted. There's no question about that. But what did they miss? What what did he want to say to them? What did he want to to challenge them with? What did he want to to receive from them? We don't know because they were sleeping. Be careful that you don't go sleeping through life and miss what God has to say to you. He said to Peter, so... You, you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, verse 41, that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing. I'll grant you that. You want to do the right thing. I'll grant you that. But the flesh, the body, its tiredness, its weakness, its fatigue is winning. Be careful. Be careful. The flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, Father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Watch this. Saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. 
See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, he says, let's go. The time is here. Now, today with this passage before us, I want to look at what can rightly be described as the single greatest problem that is attached to prayer. I want to speak to you about the painful experience of unanswered prayers. Prayers that seem to be uh, on target and prayers which would seem to be good, prayers that would seem to be right, and prayers to which God seems to say no or nothing at all. Now, every prayer has had this experience. We pray for jobs. We pray for healing. We pray for rescue. We pray for life change. We pray for those kinds of things that we think God would want, and yet sometimes the job doesn't come, the healing doesn't come, the rescue doesn't come, the life change doesn't happen. And if we're followers of Jesus, our faith can waver because it can seem as if prayer doesn't work. But what is far more dangerous is that we can be tempted to unfaithfulness because it can seem as if somehow God doesn't care. We can struggle, too, with the fact that the God who makes clear promises like, call to me and I will answer you, doesn't always seem to answer, even when we call. What is even more confusing is that while Jesus himself taught and reinforced this, while Jesus himself said things like, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer, yet he himself, in his darkest hour, at the most critical point and time in his life, prayed and himself experienced an unanswered prayer. How are we to understand all of this? How should we respond when God seems to say no or God seems to say nothing to our prayers? How should we respond? How should we see it? How should we react? What should we do? when we find ourselves in what is, and very, very often for, for many of us, uh, one of the most painful times of our lives. I want you to see with me that in our passage for this morning, we have a moving story coming from the life of Jesus, a story that actually helps us gain three vital insights into unanswered prayer, using Jesus' unanswered prayer as our example. It helps us to understand three things. First, when even the best prayers are unanswered, why the best prayers can go unanswered, and how the best unanswered prayers become answered prayers. I want us to look together at when the best prayers are unanswered, why the best prayers can go unanswered, and how the best unanswered prayers actually become answered prayers. I can't wait to get to the third point. I want to go ahead and preach it right now. But it's not as good if you don't go through the first two, so you'll just have to indulge me this morning, all right? All right, is that all right? Is that all right? You know, here's what's going on. School just started. It rained this morning. I know, I know, I know. I almost want to make you stand up and do some calisthenics. <clears throat> all right, all right, so straighten up just a little bit. Make sure you don't knock your coffee over, but be sure it's real close at hand. All right, here we go. Here, are you ready? Yes. Hey, can I have more time on this sermon? This is going to be... Nope, they said no. All right. All the power in the church is really right back there. Those mysterious people behind the veil. Are you ready? I knew it. I knew it. Well, let's go. First of all, let's, let's look together at when the best prayers are unanswered. Now, obviously, I need to get started by explaining to you what I mean by best prayers. We've seen already in this series that all prayers aren't created equal. The very best prayers have power with God. They're able to touch his heart. They're able to move his hands. 
And the prayers that touch his heart and move his hands are, are prayers that are made uh, with faith by faithful or righteous people, as we saw in James. They are made with faith, confidence in God, by righteous or faithful people, people who are living their lives pursuing a life that, that uh, pleases him. Not to enter into some kind of bartering with God. Look, I'm living for you. You have to do what I say. We, we said, no, 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 no. Prayer is not transactional. Prayer is... Prayer is not transactional. Prayer is? Prayer is not transactional. Prayer is? Relational. That's what we've said. Now we've said it three times, and we're good. It's not transactional. It's relational. But when we live our lives in the pursuit of pleasing God, we're better able to partner with him both in our praying and in our living. That moves the heart of God, moves the hands of God. We've seen that. We've seen that. And that's what I mean by the best prayers. Jesus teaches us as well that when faith and faithfulness combine, faith has the power, prayer has the power rather, to move mountains to do the impossible. But notice with me, this is, this is such an, uh, an un, uh, a breathtaking kind of thing. Here we have Jesus, perfect in faithfulness, perfect in faith. You don't have to convince Jesus of what his father can do. He knows. And he's making a request in faith and in the midst of his faithfulness. And his father says no to his prayer. Look at the request. It's found in verse 39. Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup is a metaphor for the suffering of the cross, the experience of the Father's wrath and punishment for sin. This is a cup that the Father is actually giving him to drink for others, for you, for me. It is, it is this cup that, that he's, he's, he's being given. And, and he's asking that this cup, this suffering on the, on the cross, the suffering of wrath and punishment might pass from him, might pass by him. So, in other words, that it doesn't touch him. And when Jesus says, if it be possible, it's important to notice that he's not saying that he wonders if God could do what he's asking. Rather, he's affirming that he believes that, that his Father can do what he's asking if the Father's purpose to save sinners will allow it. And so he's showing great faith in his Father. He knows it's within the Father's capacity to remove the cup. You ever been there? You ever been there? You ever been there? Come on now. You're praying. You genuinely believe that God can do anything. And you're praying. And God doesn't do what you know he could. Anybody had that? Yeah. Frustrating. Can make you angry. Particularly and especially when you know that what you're asking for is a good thing, not a selfish thing. A good thing. So here's Jesus, feeling very human emotions and knowing what is coming. The Scripture says dread overtakes him, and he knows his Father could make the cup pass. And it's not only the dread of the awful physical suffering that he's going to endure, but the fact that in bearing the sins of humanity, he will suffer separation from his father, something he'd never experienced. Something excruciatingly painful. And Jesus' deep personal desire is that his destiny of suffering and dying in the place of sinners be changed somehow and that God find another way to do what needs to be done. He's not saying, I, I don't think it needs to be done. He's just saying, I want you to find another way. Jesus wants sinners to have a way to be set free and forgiven and restored. He's simply asking the Father to use some other method than his substitutionary death to make that happen. 
Notice how his prayer ends. This is vital for us. After he expresses his personal desire to the Father, he expresses a greater desire. After his personal desire, a greater desire. Do you see a pattern there? Do you see a pattern there? Do you see a pattern there? After his personal desire, a greater desire. And this is it. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My personal desire is this, but I have a greater desire. I realize it's a greater desire. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so, when it is all said and done, what Jesus displays here is that more than wanting what he wants, he wants what the Father wants. And if his death is the Father's chosen way for rescuing many from the, from the enemy and from eternal death, he yields to his Father. You see, Jesus understands that even the best prayers of faith offered with lives of faithfulness are not always answered as asked. He knows something that we need to know as we pray, and that is God's ultimate will prevails. God's ultimate will prevails. Now, that might bring us back again to that question, well, why pray at all if God's ultimate will prevails? Let's unpack that quickly. Unpack that quickly. God's ultimate will prevails. In other words, what God has said will come about at the end of all things is going to come about. And nothing will keep God from realizing what he has in store ultimately for his universe, that all things will be put under the feet of Jesus, and then he will hand all things over to his Father. Everything is, has come from Jesus at creation. Everything's going back to Jesus, and no one can stop the return of all things to Christ. That was good for you. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Now, here's what I want you to see. Prayer never changes the ultimate will of God, but prayer can, as we've seen in Exodus, prayer can have an impact on the method by which God accomplishes his ultimate will. Does that make sense to you? It can alter the ultimate method. It can And the kinds of prayers that alter the ultimate method for the accomplishment of God's will are the prayers of those who have faith and are faithful. They can, but not always. They can, but not always. When do even the best prayers go unanswered? Well, we learn from the life of Jesus that it is when the prayer of faith-filled, faithful uh, persons aren't in full alignment with the ultimate will of God that those prayers will be unanswered in the sense that God will not grant exactly what was asked. Now, the prayer will still have effect, as we're going to see. It will still have power with God, but just not in the way sought. Okay, you taking notes? Good, got your pen ready? Good? You ready? Yeah? How about y'all in the back? All right, here we go. The Scripture says, the Scripture calls on us to ask But the Scripture never says that we get to dictate the answer. Sometimes in the midst of our unanswered prayers, we get very frustrated with God. And we act like my two four-year-old grandchildren when they don't get their way or have their say. Okay, I can see that one sunk in. We're going to go on. Uh, let's look at why. Let's dig in deeper at why the best prayers can go unanswered. That, that might seem like an unnecessary truth to point out, question to ask. If the best prayers go unanswered when they're out of alignment with God's ultimate will, isn't the reason obvious? God doesn't answer because that's not what he wants ultimately, but he won't serve his purpose or whatever. But understanding that doesn't really help us deal personally with unanswered prayer. 
Because many times, most times, what we pray for is good, is reasonable, much needed, capable even of honoring God himself. To pray for something that is good only to find God declining it can make us question the very goodness of God himself. There's something more we need to see here. In verses 40 to 41, they seem to show us that this first prayer lasts about an hour. That's important. Jesus is praying about an hour. Afterwards, he comes back, and he checks on the three disciples, and he finds them sleeping. He admonishes them, as we saw, and then he goes back to pray again in verse 42. And the second time, Jesus does something very important. He prays along similar lines, but with a distinct difference. Let this cup pass from me, he says in verse 42. My father, if instead of saying, let this cup pass from me, he says in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What has happened? Jesus' first hour of prayer and pleading with the Father has brought him to a new place. I think it's Oswald Chambers that is famous for saying that uh, prayer doesn't change things for me. Prayer changes me for things. And there is truth in that. Prayer changes things to be sure, but prayer also does change me for things. In fact, what I found that in my walk with Christ, in those times and in those seasons where my uh, heart and mind are fixed on prayer and I'm pursuing God with all that I have and all that I am, inevitably I not only see change going on around me, I start seeing change going on within me. And I want to submit to you today that one of the reasons we don't pray nearly as much or as often or with the intensity that we might pray is that we down inside are resistant to the change that coming before a holy God absolutely necessitates. We want, watch this, we want things to change and we want people to change, but we want this guy or this gal to stay the same. And so we plead with Almighty God, change my children. And maybe what they need is some change, but they also might need a changed mother. Lord, Change my wife. Well, she may need to change. I'm pretty sure she does, but she also needs. Just knowing your wife, she, you know, there's some things she needs to work on. Not, not your wife. Well, may, well no. Uh, maybe her husband needs to change. Our marriage needs to change, yeah. Well, pray for that. But if you really begin to pray, very, very often God's going to start right there with you. And I think that's one of the reasons why we say we believe in prayer, we will pray in a crisis, but we don't pray regularly is because we're glad to see change around us, but we're not so excited about seeing change inside us. The Father has brought Jesus to a new place. Clearly, the Father has said no. God's firm will is that Jesus drink the cup before him. The cup of rejection, abuse, torture, a cross. The cup of the ultimate rejection of the Father. As he bears the sin of sinners, your sin, my sin.
But notice, once the Father's no to his prayer has been made clear, Jesus yields resolutely and without any questions. He simply submits, saying, your will be done. We see his will coming into alignment with the Father's will, even though it will cost him dearly. There is a simple but potent conviction at work here, a conviction that lay behind Jesus' submission. Jesus is convinced of something that lets him hear, watch now, hear the Father's no and accept it at the same time. Jesus is absolutely convinced that his Father always knows what is best and not only knows what is best, his Father always wills what is best and not only wills what is best, but that his Father always does what is best. His Father knows. His Father wills. His Father does. And watch this. Regardless of what Jesus sees coming at him, his conviction about the Father's capacity for what is best, knowing it, wanting it, doing it, remains absolutely unshaken. This is the conviction that allows him to say at the end of the day, not my want to, but your want to. There is a recognition behind the conviction that says, my father always knows what is best, wills what is best, does what is best, therefore I must Trust him and yield to him if I'm going to receive what is best. And this is why Jesus teaches his disciples to, to look at God as a good father and expect from him the best in life and in prayer. He says things like this. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, those who pray. He is a God of the how much more. Jesus himself was able to pray and hear the Father's no and submit to it because he lived with this conviction that his Father knows and wills and does only the best. What is more, this conviction that brought submission also brought anticipation. Now, Submission is a word that we don't like. We don't like that word. And that might be the dark side of this lesson. Knowing who God is leads us to submit. That might be the way we look at it. I don't know. But there is a bright side to this example as well. With submission also comes anticipation. With submission, rooted and grounded in who the Father is, the one who knows, the one who wants, the one who does good, with submission to that kind of Father comes anticipation. Anticipation. This is the greatest secret. It is a secret Jesus practiced. You see, Jesus, knowing who his father really is and what he's really like is able to hear the father's no in prayer and receive it submit with submission but also with anticipation because he knows in the economy of God because of who God is The best is always yet to come. And that is why the book of Hebrews says, speaking of Christ going to the cross, that Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith went to the cross. 
How did he go? Why did he go? The scripture says he went for the joy set before him and endured the cross, despising the shame. The way Christ went to the cross, knowing the pain and knowing the shame, was that he looked straight into it, understood what was happening, but then he looked past it to what would happen as a consequence. There was joy in the cross for Christ because of the consequence of the cross and the consequences that cross would bring. And do you want to know what the consequences of that cross were? Carrera Tyson. Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Yeah? Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? I'm only doing this to people that I recognize. (laughs) If I don't know you, I'm not going to do that to you. So just rest. Just rest. I know you know him and you love him. I was there when you said yes. Yeah. Jesus looked beyond his own suffering because he knew that the consequence of the cross would be people like me and like you. Now, I've got to be really honest with you and say, I feel like Jesus got the short end of the stick. when he got me and actually when he got you too and I know him I'm not coming to you if I I, all right are you good good. it's true isn't it yeah but but the amazing thing to me is that Jesus doesn't see it that way he didn't see it that way He doesn't think he got the short end of the stick. It was for the joy of setting me free. It was for the joy of washing away my sin. It was for the joy of making me whole where I was broken. It was for the joy of welcoming me into his family that Jesus went to the cross but looked beyond it. It was for the joy. Did you know that if you know Christ, you are his joy? You are his joy. Yeah, I don't feel like it. Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. Your feelings have absolutely nothing to do with it. Your feelings and facts, they don't always line up. Isn't that right? Yeah. Boy, I'm picking on you a lot today. fact is, if you're his, you're his joy. You are his joy. And he had his mind on you when he was heading to that cross. Can you just park there a minute? Can you, can you feel that a minute? You say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I, I get it. Neither am I. That's not the point. That's not the point. This, this, this new life of ours in Christ isn't something that we, we work hard to get. We can't work hard to get it. It's gift. He gave. Watch, 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 watch. He took the cup so we wouldn't have to. And he did it with joy because he knew as he did, we would become his. I am his joy. Wow. I am. His joy. 
I am his joy. If you're a follower of Jesus, say, I am his joy. I am his joy. And every time we pray, he delights to see us coming. Because we are. We are his joy. I haven't even gotten to the third point yet. I'm ready to quit. This is good. (laughs) I mean, this is rich. I almost just want to park right here. Somebody here this morning needs that. In fact, I think I needed that. That was good. Sometimes that happens. I am. I am his joy. I am his joy. See, your world wants to tell you that you are junk. Messed up, unfixable. Jesus says, no, no. You're my joy. Well, Jesus and his experience there in Gethsemane teaches us one final thing. And that is how the best unanswered prayers become answered prayers. Verse 44 tells us that Jesus prays a third time. And the scripture says, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. What words? Verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus' first unanswered prayer has now been fully and completely changed to a different prayer. Jesus has moved from let this cup pass from me to if there is no other way that this cup can pass by others except I drink it for them, then I submit your will be done. Did you catch the difference? If, if there is no other way that this cup can pass by others except I drink it for them, then I submit your will be done. And t- total alignment with the ultimate will of God has come. Jesus wants what the Father wants. He always has wanted what the Father wanted, but now he understands it with a clarity. He wants to be the way for the unforgiven to be forgiven, for the sinner to be made clean, for the barrier between a holy God and sinful man to be removed. He is that way. He is God's best way. Once done, he goes to his disciples a final time and he tells them, verse 45, See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise. Let's go. No retreat. This is an advance. I'm going right into the teeth of my enemy. I'm going right to confront Judas. I I know what's happening next. Here I go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. You guys have been sleeping, but I've been praying. I'm ready. You're not. But let's go. Here we go. And from that point forward, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's tried in an unjust court. He's scourged by the Romans and condemned to death on a cross. There he bears the punishment for the sins of a sinful world. But do you see how his unanswered prayer was actually finally answered? Jesus had asked that this cup pass by him, that it not touch him. The father said no, and the cup came. But what we discover in the story of Jesus is that behind the father's no was also a yes. The father saw to it that the cup that he said had to come and had to be drunk was a cup that would pass by just as Jesus asked, just not in the way that Jesus asked it. That cup would pass by, and that cup did pass by. It passed by in something called the resurrection. 
It was a cup that came. It stayed for three days, but it didn't stay forever. That cup in the end did pass by. So on that, amen, on that third day, the conviction that my father knows best that brought submission to the Father's will with anticipation of what the Father would do found its realization in a resurrection. In the cup of death, Jesus drank, died, and Jesus lived again. And the hardest, most painful, unanswered prayer in all the world was ultimately answered because behind God's no to Jesus' request was God's yes to all that was best for Jesus, for us, for the world, for the kingdom. So how do the best unanswered prayers become answered prayers? Behind every painful no of God that comes out of the will of God, to our prayers. God also gives a powerful yes that comes from that same will. Every time God says no to what is less, He also says yes to what is best. And that means, as Jesus shows, we can accept his no and then go on and look for his best behind it every time we pray. So when God says no, keep looking for his yes. Because you know at the end of the day, he will say no to what is less. Your method to get to his ultimate will may be a good method, but it may not be the best method. Look, 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 look. Keep looking. Every time God says no, you can be sure he's got a better yes coming. Now, I will tell you, it's possible that that better yes, we won't see it till the other side of eternity. But in the economy of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the economy of that God, not the God of our imagination and not the God of popular culture. That God, in the economy of that God, the best is always yet to come. All right. So how do we respond when God seems to say no to our answers? Here is the point. Here is the point. Behind every no of God is his best yes. And when we are praying and God seems to be saying no, we need to respond believing, God, behind every no of yours is your best yes. I may not be able to see it, but I believe it because I trust you. Now, what does this mean for you? If you're a follower of Jesus, the way to handle God's no on any matter is to pray until you can receive his no, yield to his will, and anticipate his yes. Receive his no, yield to his will, anticipate his yes. It's what Jesus did. You've got to be able to receive the no, re yield to his will, and anticipate his yes. Now, to help you with that, I want to give you a guide for praying when God says no. You got your pens ready? Here we go. A guide for saying when God says no. When prayer is unanswered, there are seven steps you can take. Here they are. They're modeled after Jesus. Number one, refuse to check out. Refuse to check out. Don't give up because God has said no. Decide to ask instead to know his will and find his yes behind his no. God, I hear you saying no, or God, I hear you saying nothing. 
but I'm going to continue to pray. I want to know your will in this matter. If I'm praying uh, out of kilter, if I'm not in line with your ultimate will, show me more so that I can pray better. I hear your no, but I'm looking for your yes. I hear your no, but I'm looking for your best yes. I know you're saying no, and it's because I don't know what you know. What I'm praying for is evidently less than your best. So I'm asking you, would you show me? your will in this matter so that I can pray with greater intelligence and I'm not going to stop. I, I, I refuse to check out, Lord. I'm, I'm after your best. Yes. Go after his best. Yes. Number two, check your alignment with his revealed will. It's very, very important as you're praying to be sure that your prayer is fully aligned with his w- will revealed in his word. The principles, the practices, the precepts of Scripture is what you're praying for in full alignment. It may be good, but is it off somewhere from what you know of God's Word? Check your alignment with His revealed will. Pray for His revealed will by praying His Word. Find a principle or a precept that sheds light on His revealed will in the matter and pray the principles and the precepts back to God. Since we mentioned marriage, I mean, go to Ephesians 5 and and begin to pray Ephesians 5 over your marriage. And rather than focusing on your husband's part or your your husband's part, focus on your part. Rather than focusing on your wife's part, focus on your part, sir. Pray the Scripture back to God. And so I would say, Father, would you help me to love my wife as Christ loved the church? Would you make me willing to lay down my life for her? Would you make me willing to lay down my preferences for her? Would you make me willing to, to lay down uh, what, what uh, I need in favor of taking up what she needs? And all the women said, amen and amen. Pray it back to him. Four, pray believing that God has a yes and wants to share it. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Five, keep praying until his answer comes. Understand that when you begin to pray in the face of God's no, God rarely shows his yes right away. He uses his no to bring your heart to a place of alignment with his will. And for most of us, that takes time. And that's where we come back to that whole issue of having to change or be changed on the inside in order to receive the change God has for us on the outside. It always has got to start here. Almost always has got to start here. Number six except that sometimes when his yes comes, it only comes in part. God doesn't tell us all of his will, only the parts that we need to know. Like a car traveling in the, in the darkness at night, he only lets us see as far as our headlights will shine. And we need to be satisfied with what he lets us see. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Except that sometimes when his yes comes, it only comes in part. And finally, pray, continually affirming your conviction that your Father knows best, wills best, and does best. Pray to that Father. You know, I'm not so sure that it's not a bad prayer practice before we come into the presence of God to check and make sure that we're praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and not the God of our imagination or the God of our fears or the God of our culture or the God of our feelings. It's the God who knows and wills and always does what is best. I'm not afraid.
to go into the presence of that God. The only time I'm afraid to go into the presence of that God with prayer is if I'm afraid of what he'll do inside me. But even inside me, isn't it true? Isn't it true that he wants and does, that he wills what is best? Why fight him? Why fight him? Come on in to his presence and ask. Let the change begin. Even when God says no, you can be absolutely sure he already has for you a better yes. So we got a great way to end today. We're going to uh, sing a song that is uh, modeled after Jesus' time on Gethsemane, modeled after his prayer. The principles are there. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Now, song. And, you know, there are two ways to sing. And uh, we have to decide for ourselves how we sing things. Two ways. For followers of Jesus, we can sing out of duty or we can sing out of delight. The one is just reading words right off the screen and saying them because they're up there and we're supposed to say what they show us. That's duty. There's no real connection with the truth that's being reflected. That's duty. You can sing out of duty. The other is to sing out of delight, and that is to sing with your words connecting with your heart, the truth of the words connecting with your heart and singing with affirmation of the truth, the reality being presented. You sing with delight. For a lot of folks here today, you're a follower of Jesus. You've been struggling with a no somewhere. And today the reality is that uh, you need to come before him and simply say, I don't understand because I've asked for things that I thought were right and good and reasonable and true and would bring you glory and all of those things. I don't understand, but here's, here's the thing I don't have to understand. But what I know now I need to do is simply say, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you to do what is best. And by the way, instead of starting outside, Lord God, would you start inside and would you start with me? Would you start with me? So let's stand together. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.